This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think that there's just been tremendous strides in active surveillance in this country, in other countries, especially in the last 10 and 20 years. But uh, there's still some room for improvement. And, you know, I think it's both on the provider acceptance and comfort with how to counsel and how to appease patients' fears, as well as patient acceptance and finding the resources available to support them through it. It's exciting to be practicing as an academic kind of researching at a time where there is actually a lot of opportunity to make some really significant impact. It's based on the shoulders of giants who've done just incredible work. And yet so much has changed in the last five to 10 years that it's due for kind of a, a revitalization using contemporary methodology and techniques and whatnot. And so it's fun to be in this space. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have Kara Watts from Montefiore, Arvin George from Michigan, and Manaj Siddiqui from University of Maryland. It's an all-star crew. Thank you so much for joining. How are you guys doing today? Thanks. Thanks for having us, Nita. Doing wonderful. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm excited to you know, pick the brain of these three thought leaders and really the kind of full spectrum of prostate cancer diagnosis and management, and also very much looking forward to seeing everybody in the next few days here in San Diego for the SUO. Let's go ahead and, and jump on into it. It's prostate cancer. We're talking about active surveillance today. This is not a PSA screening talk, but I think to kind of set the stage, I do want to ask patient coming in, elevated PSA, shared decision-making, you're moving towards a biopsy. In your practice, is everybody getting an MRI prior to a biopsy? Maybe, Kara, we can start out with you. Yeah, I, I would say we're about 95% getting an MRI before biopsy. It's certainly preferred, but some no-show or very rarely will insurance not cover it for initial stages, but majority are. And is that is that fairly similar for you, Arvin and Minaj? Yeah, for, for me, I think that's uh, maybe a little bit less, maybe we're closer to 80-20. And I think there's, you know, for us, there's two major things that drive that. So one is insurance coverage, which was, I would say, for the most part, dissipated over the last two to three years and also with kind of guideline recommendations as well. But I still think there are practice patterns that, that exist that are a little bit harder to, I wouldn't say break because I don't necessarily think it's wrong to not get an MRI first. But I do think that is rapidly becoming the standard of care for our providers and especially in my practice. Yeah, I'll add, um, you know, so I actually have a kind of a dual hats. I attend at the VA and then I attend at university. And my practices are very different within the two settings. So at university, it's more of a referral practice where either patients have found me or they're being sent to me because of certain resources. And I, it's virtually 100% in the university practice that they're getting MRIs before their biopsies. The VA is akin to kind of a community practice of sorts. It, it is a tertiary center, but it also just captures patients as they are getting their initial screening PSA. You know, it's kind of the first exposure that the patients have to urologists. In that practice, I mean, I, we don't have the uh, infrastructure and resources to do an MRI on everybody yet. I think that the bandwidth is just not there. So we are actually more selective in that population because we're still booking MRIs two, three months out, and we just couldn't do it on everyone. Yeah, and I think that sets up perfectly. I mean, we're all in academic settings and we're largely seeing referrals, but of course there's patients that are coming into us primarily. And, and maybe so, you know, jumping into it, let's say they've received a biopsy at an outside facility, 12-core biopsy, grade group one disease. How does that conversation even start with you? Minaj, maybe you want to lead off? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I think that in, in my practice, the, the, the key is getting a sense of shared language and understanding of the disease. You know, I think the, the first encounter that most men in their 50s and 60s, sometimes 70s, have with prostate cancer is it's often the first major diagnosis and illness they're being struck with, right? It's not, you know, they, they may have had heart disease and cholesterol and these things, but things that don't seem life-ending 
And suddenly it's like the C word, cancer, and it, it comes pretty loaded. And sometimes they've had family members that have passed away from it. So I think the way I, I tend to approach it is I give them context and I say like, look, this is not the same as those other diagnoses, that, that this is not something that's likely to cause you a shortened lifespan, especially in the, in the form that you've been diagnosed with it. And, and once we start to understand that, then dive into treatment options. Yeah. Yeah. Kara, what's your kind of, you know, when you walk in, how do you kind of set the tone, set the stage? Yeah, I agree with what Minhaj says about having sort of a shared language. And so I, I usually jump in rather than prolong giving them their diagnosis. And, you know, I just say, listen, I, I found some cancer on your biopsy, but I'm going to take my time and go through this with you and give you uh, all of the options. And I very specifically say, I remember a patient said to me once, you know, they had a family member with pancreatic cancer and that's all they thought about. And I specifically tell men who have low risk and favorable intermediate risk disease, look, this is not like pancreatic cancer because that's something that most people understand and, and capture that this is a different animal and this is something that we can manage and then take them through this, the different stages and the, the options for them. Arvin, let me ask you a question. So let's say that you've done the biopsy. It pops up in your results section on a Wednesday. Are you sharing that information with your patient? You know, are you putting in a phone call and then releasing the results? Do you have like a phrase that goes along with it? How do you kind of break the news? Yeah. So I think that with now that these, a lot of these results are immediately accessible to patients, that I have changed my practice a little bit in that prior to the biopsy, I set up an appointment about one to two weeks afterwards when I know the, the pathology will have returned. And so I've had this, uh, there's a set expectation that that's the time where we're going to discuss this. My goal is that I hope that it reduces some anxiety. I'm sure that it doesn't because, you know, once you see a result come across your know, patient portal, that it can be extraordinarily stressful. But I do set up that time point so that they know that that's the time where we're going to discuss this in detail, where they have the opportunity to ask questions and those kind of things. I would say that since that has happened, it's been quite rare where patients will reach out to me ahead of time, immediately after they receive the results, for example, because they know that we have dedicated time set aside. Where historically, I used to call patients and say, hey, this was your initial results, and you know, I'm going to set up an appointment so that we can discuss this in more detail. But what I found that was oftentimes I'm sitting there trying to put this together on the phone. They're not prepared for the questions that they need to ask. We're discussing this kind of out of hours, which may not be convenient either for the patient to be able to process that information or for me as well. And I ascribe very similar to, you know, what Kara uh, does in that, you know, I start that conversation trying to clear the air a little bit and saying, you know, what you have is low risk prostate cancer. I just say what you have is prostate cancer. The likelihood is, is that you're going to live a long, healthy life, that you're going to see your kids graduate from college. You will see your, you know, children get married and you will enjoy your grandchildren. And that kind of hopefully sets the tone for the conversation, relieves some of that anxiety, and then we can kind of move on to some of the more nitty gritty details. Yeah. Just to kind of throw my two cents in there, I've actually started either at the pre-biopsy or at the time of the biopsy to say, hey, listen, if we find cancer, I'm going to send you some resources and that's going to be your homework assignment. And I have no vested interest in this, but I do think it's wonderful. You know, David Keynes has a really, really nice app called Well Prepped, where you can select sources, NCCN guidelines. I've got a couple of videos that I've created. I mean, I've got some music, urology things in there. And I have found that the conversation is less deer in the headlights. I have zero idea if they're, you know, synthesizing anything that I'm saying. But now they can say, hey, does this apply to me? What about this? Am I a candidate for this? And it makes the consultation quite a bit more effective, I think. But I also walk in and first thing is you're going to be okay. You know, with small renal masses, grade group one prostate cancer, stage one testis cancer, I just feel like the first thing you got to do is just, that's all they're going to remember, that you're going to be okay. So I think that we're absolutely on the same line here. And one of the things I kind of struggle with, Minaj, going back to what you were kind of mentioning you know, when somebody comes in to see me outside biopsy, sextant biopsy, I just feel like I have incomplete information to really start counseling. You know, I don't want to get them all geared up for everything's perfectly fine. It's rosy because I really want to see an MRI before I start giving them any sense of what's coming next, et cetera. So if they haven't had an MRI, is that preferred, mandatory, critical in your estimation? Kara, what do you think? 
you know, I think people have different approaches on this. Do you are you considered on active surveillance after your first biopsy, whether it's a sextant uh, or or twelve core, or whether it's a fusion, or or whether it's after the confirmatory biopsy to prove that what you found initially is the same? You know, if the in- initial information is what it is, you're on active surveillance until we prove you otherwise. But I'm going to have a lower threshold to do a confirmatory biopsy sooner to make sure because I don't know what Dr. X and another practice did for the biopsy and, you know, what that practice looks like. So I'd be more likely to do an MRI in a sooner period, maybe at six months than at one year to do a confirmatory biopsy on the earlier side. And if it looks okay at six months, then push it to 12 months and spare them a, you know, a a sooner biopsy. Okay. So you pretty much would want to see an MRI within about six months. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I think most of us would agree that minimal is 8, 12 weeks or so. You're going to have inflammation, post-biopsy changes and whatnot. Minaj, Arvin, are you all really into MRIs in this setting? Yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, it may not necessarily be incorrect to obtain an MRI prior to the initial biopsy. But I think in this setting, our success of surveillance is really dependent on accurate state disease staging and ensuring that this person is an appropriate candidate for surveillance. Now, you know, I think I, I would say that excellent active surveillance outcomes predates the MRI era. And so what we're really talking about here is identifying higher risk disease earlier. Is that likely going to impact that patient's outcome in the long term? And while I'm not necessarily sure that that would be the case, I think that if I was a patient and I had occult higher risk prostate cancer, that's something that I need to know about. We do know that about 8 to 12% of men who have an MRI and a tongue biopsy, that's additional Gleason 7 or above prostate cancers that will identify that the 12 core systematic will not. But there is a small proportion of patients in whom we're going to upgrade by Gleason score. And there is a, a sub-segment of those patients who are likely to benefit. They're essentially those patients who could suffer harm if there would be a delay in diagnosis. And they'll generally be those patients whose cancers are typically outside of the traditional biopsy template. So like really distal apical or base tumors, anterior tumors, if you're not routinely doing anterior sampling, some of these subcapsular, subcapsular tumors. So I personally, I, I do believe that there's a benefit and that's how I do it in my practice. Yeah, there is some evidence to support it. Uh, Laurie Klotz published the ASSIST trial, randomizing men into either a systematic biopsy alone or adding a, a confirmatory MRI and targeted biopsy, while the initial results didn't really show a difference. The two-year follow-up of that study did actually show that they were able to reduce quote-unquote active surveillance failures, but really that's just another way of saying delayed diagnosis, which I'm not necessarily sure would be a failure. No, I I think that's really insightful that much of the active surveillance literature comes from the pre-MRI era. And, you know, in addition to missed lesions, I think PSA density, accurate sizing of the prostate is a nice variable that we get. I mean, certainly larger glands, it's you, know, you could miss something, apical lesions, as you mentioned, all of that. I mean, in my practice, unless there's a contraindication, I, I really do like to get that just to get a sense. And maybe we'll walk through some relatively uncommon scenarios where you find some concerning radiographic findings here in a bit. But Minaj, how about you? I would only add that I think that active surveillance, even more than most other disease states, like low-risk prostate cancer, is really patient-catered. And I think that I like to get them right within the year of the consultation, but the decision to get it now versus at the one-year follow-up is very much patient-centric. And often it's actually a gauging of like two personality types. There's the person who you're convincing to do active surveillance and the person who like after hearing they don't need treatment couldn't be out of your office fast enough and like is just happy as anything that, you know, they don't have to go through surgery. And And so you know, because I, I think what the Arvin said, which is really important, is it, it's important to remember, like, there's so much safety demonstrated already, generally speaking, pre-MRI, that, yes, we might be missing something. But generally speaking, I don't, I, like, it's few and far between that, like, you have a really dramatic miss that's going to make a difference within the year. And so for the person who's happy, like, I'm more and more of the line that, like, less is more with active surveillance. Like, make this as pleasant an experience as possible. Limit the touch points to what is necessary to, like, make this a less stressful, like, anxiety-provoking kind of experience for them. And so for them, the one-year MRI is great. And for the person who, like, is, like, still skeptical, I find the MRI to be a very powerful tool to prove to them that they don't have anything really bad. 
as much as it is for me to like feel like reassured that I'm not missing something bad, it also like, you know, I, those are the patients I show the MRI and I go like, look, it looks okay, right? Like they're nothing, no sign of, uh, or sometimes it backfires and actually that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> you just see a pyrite five lesion that's like anterior and it, you know, and you're like, okay, well, good thing we got this. <laughs> but I mean, I think like generally speaking, the way it plays out is that it actually helps convince people who are skeptical or may have been set on a different path. I mean, we have this audience here. We have this group here that is like pretty much on the same page and how we approach this, but that's not unfortunately how it is everywhere. And a lot of these patients come in having been told that they need an invention. And now you're trying to convince them. They're just getting a second opinion for one reason or another, because they got conflicting information. They found out that there is a sector sensing. They want to find out more. Or they, you know, they're coming in because they think they need surgery and they're just getting a second opinion from an academic center about surgery. And then suddenly you kind of hit them on the side with this active surveillance thing. And they, they often need an MRI to just totally get them off that mental railroad onto a different path, you know, and that I use it for that too a lot. Yeah, that, that's spot on. And we had a, a new hire who came to me and said, that we should come up with the active surveillance protocol. And I, I love it. It's standardized, evidence-based. And he sent me kind of a draft. I'm not picking on him. And I was like, listen, man, you know, when somebody comes in with an 80-year-old who got a biopsy at the outside with a single core of grade group one cancer, 20% of the core, I don't want to do an MRI and a confirmatory biopsy and go crazy and do it on protocol. And, you know, there's all these kind of scenarios. And Minaj, you, you touched on this as well. When you get a test, you better be ready to kind of synthesize that information. And I like the way you phrase when it backfires, because we all hope and expect it's going to tell us exactly what we want organ confined, nothing concerning, but that's not always the case. And when you do run into those less common scenarios, you know, some concern for EPE, bladder neck invasion, and the biopsy shows grade group one, what do you, what do you do with that? Well, I think you highlight one point is, is that there's, you know, there's some additional benefit from the MRI outside of your kind of routine. Is there a lesion or is that not a lesion? I think you get a lot of additional local staging information whether that be negative or, you know, a negative finding or a positive finding. So, you know, really the other two things are going to, the other two major things are going to be, is that extra capsular extension? And that is either gross extra capsular extension. There's lots, there's, it's like, a, it's a bit of a continuum because that's read as no extra capsular extension, or it could be focal bulge or capsular irregularity or loss of the rest rectoprostatic angle. They're all these different kind of morphometric terminology that's used to be able to assess that organ-confined disease risk. But even with all that information, we need to take that with a grain of salt because the positive predictive value of MRI for extracapsular extension is actually only on the order of about 55 to 60%, so pretty close to a coin flip. So saying that somebody is resigned to treatment if your MRI shows bulged and only Gleason 6, I mean, certainly I'd be more concerned about is that occult high-risk disease, Gleason grade group 2 or patent 4 within that area. But unless it shows me gross extracapsular disease or seminal vesicle invasion, which I think is a little bit better in terms of its positive predictive value, I don't necessarily feel that I would be, my hand would be forced in, in one direction or another. And again, I think that it goes back to, I mean, I'll just point that this is very patient-centric because of all cancers that exist in the world. I think that prostate cancer and especially favorable risk prostate cancer or whatever you want to call it, low risk and low volume intermediate risk prostate cancers. These are the ones where we have to take the full picture into consideration. Like you mentioned, you know, an 80 year old is very different than a 50 year old. You know, the PSA take we take into consideration the prostate volume, what the patient wants, what the patient's caregiver or spouse or family members want. There's no quick answer for that. No, I mean, you know, even in the initial 15 minutes of this, we haven't gotten past uh, whether or not to get an MRI and uh, whether or not we need to do another biopsy. So hear you loud and clear. Now, wh now, what about if the patient comes in to see you, elevated PSA, you obtain a pre-biopsy MRI, and then you do an MRI ultrasound fusion biopsy that shows grade group one cancer. Are you okay with that, that you've adequately sampled it? Do you feel a little bit more confident that something egregious wasn't missed? So I think if you're doing a, a fusion biopsy, you're saying if you do a fusion biopsy? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's image guided or cognitive fusion, you know, depending on what your technique is and where your experience is, in that case, I find that reassuring to me that I have adequately sampled or found the cancer. And my only hesitation comes in if it's a Pyrans 5 and I've only found grade group 1 disease or no cancer. And that happens. I mean, that certainly happens on the order of 
20 to even 40% of the time, depending on what series you look at, but have a lower threshold to do an earlier confirmatory biopsy to make sure that I haven't undersampled or misrepresented their initial cancer. Anybody doing in-bore biopsies, working with your radiology colleagues, or, or are you still kind of keeping this in urology land? Yeah, not yet. You know, our, our radiology team, they are starting an in-bore biopsy program. And so I do think that the, it's helpful overall. I think that the cost, the, the, the kind of cost benefit leans towards doing it outside of the MRI setting because MRI time is expensive. But there are certain cases where like Kara highlighted, when there's kind of discordance in your know, findings, like let's say a high PSA density and kind of a negative targeted biopsy, you're thinking, what's going on here? Or you see a big Pyrex 5 lesion and the biopsy is negative where you find recent six prostate cancer or a very small lesion that can be difficult to target cognitively or even, you know, with software-based fusion. That's where I think that you get a lot of additional confidence by doing in biopsy, ensuring that you've hit the target. Okay. So is it safe to say that kind of a conservative initial approach would be diagnostic biopsy, MRI, and confirmatory biopsy. That'd be an aggressive first year for a patient that you're somewhat worried about, maybe a younger patient, maybe a family history, things along those lines. And then if you've done the initial biopsy that you feel a little bit more comfortable that you've kind of got a you know, reasonable lay of the land, you know, barring anything unusual like a big Pirates 5 in the scenarios that Arvin just pointed out. Is that accurate? Does that kind of sound fairly consistent? I would say that's a fair statement. The only additional thing that I would add is is my confidence in the MRI quality and the quality of the MRI interpretation, because now that prostate MRI is becoming ubiquitous, I'm finding even primary care doctors who are ordering the prostate MRI either upfront or as a confirmatory test. And so really, I still think a lot of radiol or there are a proportion of radiologists who are on their learning curve. And so it's not just a MRI and a targeted biopsy, but it's a good MRI and a good targeted biopsy. And with that caveat, I would 100% agree. Okay, last question before we totally beat this horse to death. So if they've had a systematic biopsy at the outside, you've got an MRI, there's a targetable lesion. Are you doing targets plus systematic or just targets? And do you think it even matters? I definitely think it matters. I think for the time being, and because really for the reason that I just mentioned is that there's we know that there's huge variability, even amongst expert centers. You know, this was published by the Society of Abdominal Radiology. They pooled their data amongst a bunch of expert centers, and that's exactly what they found. There was a huge degree of variability. And we also know that up to 20% of negative MRIs will still harbor Gleason grade group 2 prostate cancer or above, largely grade group 2. It's not like we're missing a bunch of high-risk prostate cancers yet. And you could argue whether or not that's of questionable clinical significance, especially if it's low volume. But it's not uncommon where I'll do a targeted biopsy on one side and find a bunch of MR invisible disease on the other side that have multiple causes with pattern four or higher within it. And so I think that, again, because surveillance, it relies on accurate disease staging and the success of surveillance relies on that. And really tumor burden or volume is that ultimate, you know, disease stage in the surveillance setting. I do think that systematic biopsies are required. Yeah, I kind of like that trust but verify approach. Minaj, yeah, let's have it. I would say that this is in the heart of like some of the room for expansion. However, you know, I agree with Arvin. I think the data repeatedly show that when you do 12 cores with MR, that you're going to capture some disease that was missed on MR, whether that's because of like the actual accuracy of the targeting or whether it's the MR visibility uh, or some combination of both, it's probably all the above. But I would also say that what is sorely needed is studies where these patients hate these repeat biopsies, right? And to the extent that there's so many reasons that patients come off of active surveillance and the biopsy is part of a big part of it, right? The whole experience. And to me, these are heavily surveilled patients who are closely monitored. And to the extent that there is a mislesion, I believe that if, if you don't catch it this year, it will progress to the point that you would probably catch it next year, right? And with, with little clinical harm. And if you could put a patient where they get MRI biopsy of just the lesions, so that's four cores instead of 16 cores, four plus 12, it makes the experience much more palatable. So I actually have this conversation for active surveillance patients, and I kind of talk through, like, where, where do you sit? Do you, do you, you, you want the most thorough workup every time? You want this kind of less involved, but has some inherent risk workup? 
where we're just going to buy a few lesions. And I've, I've actually put this dual prong kind of process in place where some patients are just so nervous about everything and they want the 12 plus target. And some actually are willing to, you know, patients like they have increasingly like appreciated how much they can process risk and these like risk benefit calculations. And you give them the option of like a 20% rate of missed cancer, a reasonable chance you'll catch it later, but no guarantee and 12 less biopsies every time we biopsy you. A lot of them choose that, actually. So I've, I've actually been doing that, and I, I'd love to see like more data come out whether this is right or not. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there's enough out there to say that it's reasonable, but I don't, I don't know if it's absolutely right or not. But I, I do think that there, that is the downside of, like, for the first biopsy, I like to do 12 plus, 12 plus target, but all subsequent biopsies, Understanding that there's, there's a the miss rate, I personally have very much started to favor doing target only and think that this is an area that we could, as a field, understand better. Yeah, I know that's that's really insightful and, you know, it brings up a good point. And of course, that's got to be juxtaposed to how you're going to kind of mentally handle potentially having a higher volume of disease at the next go around, the rest of it sampled, but critical, critical questions. So I, I do want to get your opinion. You know, there's been a little bit of a revival of a movement to consider not calling grade group one prostate cancer cancer. Any reflex opinions on that? I actually happen to um, know on the patient side, actually, there's there's this reporter, Howard Walensky, who uh, is kind of like freelance, but works in the Chicago kind of environment. And uh, is Scott Egner is his urologist and he's an active surveillance patient. And so these all tied together because Scott Egner wrote you know, he's, I think senior author of the JCO paper that really put this opinion on denaming Gleason 6 as cancer out there and has, has continued to have this conversation. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that there is a lot of public good that could be had, which probably outweighs the potential harms. Yet I think it is important to recognize that there are harms and that there, that there is good. And I think that I think that it can't be a one-sided thing. Uh, and so I think that if it could be implemented, that we'd stop calling it cancer, and yet we do name it something that signifies that it's it needs to be followed, that it needs that that it has some implications. I personally think that there could be a lot of benefit from it. And I know on the patient side, I mean, at least Hard Walensky, who has very strong opinions on this, the group or he's around seems highly interested in this because it's not just like the things we as clinicians think about. I mean, he talks about like how anyone li- labeled with Gleason 6 cancer can't get life insurance anymore. Yeah. He, he mentioned the financial toxicity about that and how his premiums went up. And I'm, you know, he's one example of probably thousands of men, but these are not things that we think about as physicians, you know, where, you know, we feel we pat ourselves on the back that we diagnosed prostate cancer. And I think, you know, to Kara's point, I do think that there is a I think there's a difference in terms of how different, I don't, I don't want to, maybe I'll say cultures rather than countries. Cultures process, you know, the population benefit versus a personal benefit and personal risk. And so I think that in either, one thing that I've noticed in the, in the U.S. is, is that I think that we're a lot more focused and patients as well are more focused on personal risk rather than, you know, what that translates to on a population level. I will say that when I counsel patients with Gleason 6 prostate cancer, I will say that I agree with Minhaj, and I think that there are a number of benefits to being able to, you know, declassify this, but still be able to give it a label, and maybe label is not the correct word, but at least a title that ascribes some importance to it, that it is not ignored, but at the same time does not, you know, induce anxiety and financial toxicity, and also aligns with its actual lethal potential as a cancer. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see both provider delivery and patient in- acceptance of high-grade PIN versus ASAP versus grade group one prostate cancer. Not all the same, but, you know, when we walk in super casually telling somebody that their biopsy showed high-grade PIN or ASAP, nothing to worry about. In a thousand years, this may turn into cancer and that's going to be grade group one and forget about it. It's just a different conversation. Okay, so let's let's say, you know, we've got our patient with or without MRI, with or without confirmatory biopsy, just kind of depending on comorbidities, patient anxiety preferences, physician preferences, very low risk prostate cancer. You know, in my practice, it'll almost be a refusal to treat. I'll say you have to get a second opinion, a tertiary opinion, a coronary opinion. And then if the only thing in God's green earth is going to be 
treatment. I think I can do a reasonable job, but that's almost like a no-go. And not only for forget treatment, but even anything further like molecular markers. I really am fairly anti-molecular markers unless there's something really pushing me based on the MRI, to be quite frank. Any dissenting thoughts or other considerations on this one? I agree 100%. I agree with you, even to the point of if on God's green earth, they, you know, they're still coming back for treatment, you still have the right to refuse. You know, I mean, they have the, they have the right to seek opinions and go elsewhere, but you have the right to say, I don't think it's indicated. I think for those patients who feel compelled to pursue treatment with very low prostate cancer, you know, that, that may just represent a failure of our understanding of what really concerns the patient and being able to appropriately communicate what that risk is and what the benefit is to treatment. Because clearly, the, you know, clearly we're, we're, we're just, we're, we're not getting it right if they decide that they want to pursue treatment. And of course, there is a, you know, there's a group of patients, it doesn't matter what you tell them, you know, I think it goes to that, you know, once they have that word cancer is, you know, in their chart, it can be hard to steer away from treatment. And it's like when Hodge said, you know, you're treating uh, oftentimes having to assess what that person's personality is and what they value and then trying to guide them in the right direction based on that. So this will be kind of, I, I think we can really maybe focus on the, the bulk of patient, which are going to be low risk and favorable intermediate risk. But when you're, you're doing your intake, to me, kind of the critical elements are, you know, of course, comprehensive HMP, all that. I do like to really dial in on a family history, a comprehensive family history. And I do like to really dial in on their lower urinary tract symptoms. And we can maybe dig into that. Anything else, you know, when you're talking to a patient, you know, contraindications to treatment, all that and so forth, but that may impact your, your recommendations when you're deciding treatment versus surveillance. Are you talking just, just in the low risk population, the Gleason 6? Yeah, not, not very low risk. Let's just put them aside that they're going to be surveyed unless there's, you know, barring anything super unusual, unfavorable made at risk and, and worse. We'll also kind of just save that for another day. But well, let me just ask, you know, family history, low risk prostate cancer patient, strong family history, father, brother, mother with breast cancer. Does that change your approach at all? My evolution of thought on this has been that I've, I used to try to do these multifactorial kind of composite risk decisions. And I felt like I just kept coming back. To me, it's about the pathology. And the patient who has greater risk disease, their their pathology is going to progress. And so increasingly, I use the risk factors to keep a closer eye or not as close an eye on the patient. And it's, it's really the pathology of time of biopsy, almost solely that is becoming becoming the reason to treat versus reason not to treat. And I and, and I just think it's also easier to present to patients because otherwise they get so caught up on like PSA and like, you know, it goes up by two, it goes down by two. And because they have a family history and because they're black and or they're not, or, you know, and like, like it gets overwhelming for them. And I, I've increasingly just found myself trying to simplify the conversation with them. And I think that like, you know, Gleason 6 versus 7, and I may be oversimplifying it, but I think of this like MRI era with improved targeted sampling, like I, I, I'm not sure I'm oversimplifying it. I think like 6s don't need to be treated and, and then even some 7s don't need to be treated now, but somewhere within there, that's where the transition is that someone should get treatment. They're very unique scenarios. The one person that, you know, the, the one like group of Gleason 6 cancers, we have a fair amount of transplant patients and they just won't transplant someone with cancer. And so you, you kind of find your hands being tied that you have to treat a Gleason 6 cancer to get them cancer-free so that they can get a transplant. That's just kind of like the one very unusual. But otherwise, that's, that's, that's my personal take on this. I, I, I don't really use, like family history and everything I, I use, but I use it to say like three-month follow versus six-month follow-up and, you know, and yearly MRI versus not yearly MRI, these types of things. BRCA carriers, CARA maybe, BRCA carriers, and then an expansion on family history. I mean, I, I think most of these features have to do with when you actually start screening as opposed to what you do once you find the pathology. If you have a good biopsy and MRI in their disease and you feel confident you've characterized them, they're no different than somebody else. It may Their trajectory on active surveillance may look different, and so your threshold may have to be a little bit varied. But, you know, even a, a team in uh, California looked at the BRCA1 and 2 and the um, ATM uh, mutants, and they found that for BRCA2 carriers, 
that they had a 60% risk of upgrading at six years. So, okay, if you're on active surveillance for six years, great. You avoided treatment for six years. So you just have to know that you're following them and keeping this in mind and not ignoring the information that's relevant to that patient's history. Yeah, and I think you bring up a critical part. You know, we're kind of having those initial conversations, setting expectations. It isn't necessarily active surveillance slash never treatment. You know, protect trial, other large longitudinal studies, 30 to 50% chance of something transpiring over the next 10 years. Are those the numbers that you kind of share with patients? Do you think it's more or less with our improved diagnostics and, you know, maybe kind of ruling out some of those appropriate candidates early on? Arvin? Yeah, I would say that that's the data that I use to counsel patients and with respect to family history and BRCA mutations and those kind of things. You know, I, I do agree with Minhaj in that, you know, pathology is the largest determinant, but we are now, you know, deep into the era of molecular characterization and genomic characterization of cancers. And pathology is an inherently subjective. And I agree with you, Aditya, that I don't necessarily hold a huge amount of weight in genomic biomarkers. You know, maybe I'll use it if I'm on the fence with a patient or if a patient is on the fence with with regards to treatment. But I do think there's an untapped information there that we don't know yet. And ultimately, you know, that will help us better, you know, risk stratify. You know, the holy grail is finding out which patient that we need to treat and which patient that we don't need to treat, right? And everything that we're talking about, we use as part of the recipe to be able to help, help inform that decision. But as it stands right now, those who have a germline mutation, there's a very, very, very few patients. And while we haven't identified all those potential mutations and that's why family history is so important, I don't think it necessarily ultimately says, yes, you 100% need to be treated now or not based on that information alone. Yeah. I mean, four to 6% localized prostate cancer. This is small slivers that we're talking about here, but you're right. You know, as we kind of discover more and more, there, there may be more. What about significant LUTs? This is something I kind of get not infrequently. You know, their AUA symptom score is fairly high. Doc, just take it out. I'm like, well, we don't really need to do that. That's probably overkill. A, you know, BPH-directed intervention's probably fine. And then I always get the question as well, if things upgrade upstage, does that preclude surgery from in the future? I mean, I've had a number of these patients just with low-risk disease, and uh, they have significant LUDs, and they're comfortable with active surveillance, but they're very bothered by their obstructive symptoms. And I've tripped them. And the reality is you're probably not actually going to find upgrading in the transition zone. That's most of them. That's not where their cancer is anyways. But you have to be very upfront with them that obviously they're on surveillance. You still have to monitor them. And so if at some point they progress, it could make radical therapy if they're going to have that slightly more challenging afterwards or slightly higher risk of urethral stricture, bladder neck contracture if they're going to ultimately have radiation. But they may never get to that point. So it's a quality of life choice, and that may benefit them for many, many years, if not indefinitely. I think that coupling, you know, treatment for BPH and prostate cancer as a matter of convenience, when the stakes are so high in terms of morbidity, I think is a mistake, in my opinion. And so, you know, for me, it's really important to even separate those thought processes for the patient that, you know, there is BPH and there is prostate cancer. And in the vast majority of cases, we will treat these different disease processes independently and focus on what's appropriate for your prostate cancer treatment and focus on what's, you know, most appropriate for your BPH treatment. So, you know, in the few cases that in really large prostates, for example, where you need some sort of intervention, I think it may be reasonable to kind of consider a dual approach. But largely, I would, I feel that, you know, decoupling BPH treatment and LUTs management with prostate cancer treatment, I think is, I think is extraordinarily important. All right. So now maybe we can do kind of like a, a little bit of a round robin clinical scenarios and Arvin, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start with you. What does high volume grade group one disease mean to you, if anything? Ah, uh, that's a great question. I, I think it's certainly more than two cause. And I would say right now, we don't really distinguish now in between high volume and low volume Gleason 6. So I don't treat Gleason 6 anymore. So the question of whether or not it's high volume or low volume is really is largely more on is it misclassification of the original Gleason score? And is there Ocal pattern four lying somewhere in that? But at the end of the day, we know that there's predominantly pattern three. And so I think that even since I started in clinical practice, which isn't too many years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, that I've seen that practice change where I used to be very uncomfortable with patients with Coming back with high volume six and then a repeat biopsy, high volume six. I've sent some of these patients to multidisciplinary clinic just to get a second opinion and saying, hey, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable. 
And they come right back and their opinion is, you know, keep them on surveillance. And that was the discussion amongst radiation oncologists, our urologists, our team. And I, you know, I, I feel affirmed and encouraged that it's the right decision. So nowadays in my practice, high volume and low volume, Gleason 6 is a moot point. And just to complete this one, molecular markers, any role in these patients? Decipher oncotype Polaris. You know, I don't have any vested interest in any of these, but are, are you getting them at all? I will get them in those patients whom I feel I'm likely to alter the clinical treatment decision. So those patients, for example, if you have somebody who has low-risk prostate cancer and they're really pushing for treatment, that can provide additional supportive information. Say, hey, you truly have low-risk disease. This is an objective test that we have, right? It's not subject to interpretation or MRI or biopsy, you know, missampling or, or sampling bias. This is an objective, you know, well... It's still subject to sampling bias, of course, because you're sending it based on the tissue that you biopsy, but it can provide some affirmation and some confidence that you're pursuing the right treatment course. Or alternatively, with 3 plus 4, I think that can, in some cases, provide some information that whether or not it ultimately influences decision-making, I think, is the point of investigation of a number of clinical trials, including G-Major, that I don't routinely employ it, though I know there are a lot of practices and people who do. Super helpful. So takeaway, and I'm seeing nods from the gang here. Volume of grade group one cancer is not going to be a trigger for treatment, and I wholeheartedly agree. And Arvin, to be totally candid, I think we kind of came up around the same time. My first year, year or two out of practice, you know, seven cores of grade group one would make me a little bit more uncomfortable than today. And I, I'd like to think that that comes across to my patients. All right, Minaj, younger patients, A, what does that mean? B, does it matter? No, I, I, I think that that actually has been dramatic shift from historic studies where age used to be a contraindication. And now to me, age is a indication, you know, that, that I think these are, these are the patients that care most about avoiding the morbidity of treatment. And I think that as long as we can keep a close eye on them, if they can get a few years of avoiding morbidity of treatment, then I think they're, they're delighted. And I think it's just about expectation setting, but you know, we keep a close eye on them, but very much offer active surveillance. I, I, I don't use age as a contraindication for active surveillance anymore. Likewise. And I used to think to myself in my head, I used to say, you know, these are the patients who have the most to lose, but they also have the most to gain from early treatment. And now it's, they just have the most to lose. And so delaying their treatment as long as possible and indefinitely in the ideal scenario, I think is the approach that I employ. Yeah. And I, I think again, in the younger patients, it's, it's exactly that mess that will start to delay treatment. I mean, sometimes they'll even say, you know, we're really having a lot of amazing progress in imaging and diagnostics and focal therapy. And you may be a candidate if we just kick the can down the road three, five, seven years that there could be something that's, you know, a better fit for you. Kara, favorable intermediate risk disease. I'll just throw it out there. Rewind seven years ago. It had to be an old, sick patient that I really consider for surveillance. And now I find myself a lot more comfortable. I'd like to think I'm cautious about it, but are you surveying patients with favorable intermediate risk disease? I definitely am. Yeah. And I think it's funny where you and Arvin and I are probably in a similar you know, number of years into practice, relatively speaking. And I was cautious with these patients at the beginning and now much more comfortable. And there was a really good systematic review comparing intermediate risk disease and it was 27 studies and low risk disease. And then they broke down the intermediate risk disease by favorable and unfavorable. So grade group two and grade group three. And so over 15 years follow-up, there was no difference in death, overall survival between the low risk and the favorable intermediate risk patients. There is a slightly increased risk of metastases in the favorable intermediate risk. So they may have slightly higher risk of needing an adjuvant therapy, but no change in out, you know, overall survival. And so again, it's a group that you may have to be following a little bit more closely and especially understanding if their disease is MRI identifiable or not and what the actual percentage of the pattern four is and the total length of their positive course, and which is also subject to interpretation. Is it a discontinuous length or is it a full length? And how is your pathologist interpreting it? That's variable between sites. But absolutely, if it's, a, if it's appropriate, it's low volume, I think it's very appropriate for them. Yeah. And I totally agree. I don't have kind of numeric cutoffs for core involvement or pattern four, but I definitely look at it. I'll draw it out. They'll say, here's your 18 millimeter core. 5% had cancer of that 5%, 10% is pattern four. This is why somebody thought that you should get treatment. And usually that's, I think, effective. But I don't know, if I had to kind of throw something out there and, you know, healthy patient, good candidate for anything, 
more than four cores out of a 12 core biopsy starts getting me nervous, 30 to 40%, you know, I'm going to put myself out there. What do you think? That's kind of my gestalt. And, you know, my, my understanding there's not real, the number of events are so low, right? Like a three core versus a four core versus a two core versus a pattern five. Like you have to have like half of the U.S. population enrolled, but any, any kind of broad strokes, recommendations you could leave for the leadership when, when thinking about favorable intermediate risk disease that might be good candidates for surveillance? In my personal practice, I'd say that this becomes much, even more patient-centric. I'd say Gleason 6, the conversation is all, almost prescriptive, like really emphasizing, like, you know, the impression that it would be almost wrong to get treatment for that disease. Whereas with favorable intermediate risk, I don't come across that way. It's an option. And I think that depending on how averse to treatment someone is, I'll push the limit further. And really just kind of conveying like, look, we're getting into risky and risky territory. Like the per- and the same exact things that Ditya that you're like mentioning. It's like, you, you know, using these metrics, these are the metrics we have. Like this, this is starting to get a little bit tricky. And some patients say, I, I want to keep pushing, right? I, like I, I just, I, I, I get it. I want to do it. And they'll push until it's four plus three. And I just saw a patient like that, you know, very recently. And then others, as soon as you're three plus four, I mean, they want treatment, right? And the outcomes are probably not as good, but three plus four as they are with three plus three, although with the very, very low four, they probably are actually. But I think that it does become patient-centered at this point. I agree with that. And I would say that, you know, sometimes it's easy for for us to get why favorable intermediate risk even exists, right? It's a disease prognostication category that correlates more with the outcomes of low-risk prostate cancer. Why do we even split up intermediate risk? Because we know that there's a group of men with intermediate risk prostate cancer that are going to do really, really well. And yet we oftentimes convince ourselves that that's not the case. You know, we have data in front of us which supports that they will perform very similarly to low-risk patients. And that's the whole reason that there is an unfavorable intermediate risk category. But I would say that most practice patterns may not reflect that, you know, in terms of contemporary practice patterns. I mean, Arvid, I will add here, though, that I've been incredibly impressed by Michigan and music and how much your group has espoused this as a goal and shifted the culture towards normalizing active surveillance in three plus four as almost an expectation at a certain percentage. I mean, I, I think you guys are like really leading the country in this kind of space. Yeah, I think that the ability to be able to communicate on a large scale to provide resources to support physicians in, in providing that recommendation, like the surveillance roadmap and stuff, makes it a little bit easier for patients to be able to, or for both providers and patients to be able to accept surveillance as a, I would say, maybe effective treatment strategy, right? Because a proportion of these patients may never require treatment, that there's still lots and lots of work to be done, especially, especially in that group of patients. Well, and I think providers may sense it, but they want that comfort. I mean, Arvin, like you mentioned early on, sending the high volume grade group one patient to multi-D just so you have the support of your community. You know, the analogy being now your community provider that's been doing this for 20 years has the support of their tertiary quaternary center university outfit that says, hey, this is okay. This is doable. And, you know, I'd like to think that getting this message out from some highly respected prostate cancer researchers would help that as well. And, you know, for me, I am a little bit more diligent in my kind of work up here. You know, they're going to get an MRI, they're going to repeat biopsy targets plus systematic. Uh, I have a low threshold to get a molecular classifier here. You know, it's almost like a, you know, again, in a healthy patient that I've got to prove to myself that this is a non-dangerous cancer. In my heart of hearts, I feel okay with about it, but I want everybody, you know, it's got to be an investment and a commitment from all sides. You know, if I'm talking somebody into doing it, that's not a really great feeling. And while they probably are going to be fine, you know, they need to have buy-in and feel comfortable with it. And, you know, we kind of touched on this digging into the pathology a bit more with grade group two disease, but adverse pathology features, are there things that when you see these buzzwords pop up on the path report that you're you're not thinking surveillance for grade group one, introductal carcinoma, cribriformia architecture, perineural invasion, which is one I kind of personally hate, but I don't know. Anyone want to take a stab at that? Yeah, I think perineural invasion, I completely agree with you. It's the, I think it's the providers who focus on research on perineural invasion who ascribe a high amount of importance to it. In terms of crib reform, I will say I don't necessarily change my management recommendation based on the presence of crib reform, but certainly introductal. That's where things start to change a little bit in the discussion, where I would lean towards treatment, certainly when there is 
entrodactyl pattern. Now, whether it's a focal entrodactyl pattern, I'm not, I'm not quite sure whether what to do, you know, how, how best to temper my recommendation in that situation. But I would, I would surmise that most of us kind of agree in this setting as well. Yeah. I, I actually don't use the path features other than, I mean, I, I agree. Introductile, I always get a little scared of because it's low PSA producing kind of tendencies and whatnot. I think I, I lean more on the actually MRI appearance and how large and how close to the capsule and whether it's starting to show kind of abutment and these types of like features to it in parallel with, you know, if, if I'm trying to figure out beyond just percent pattern four, percent pattern four, I think is like the main path feature. And then, then actually I think MRI features and sometimes PSA density also, if it's, it's getting on the high side, I, I get a little nervous, those situations. Kara, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, you basically summarize Cabra. I agree completely. I, I can't, I can't really add much else to this. I just, you know, if, if it's crib reform, you just have a slightly lower threshold to follow them a little bit more closely and slightly shift your conversation with them about the importance of following up and monitoring closely, but it doesn't warrant immediate treatment if they're otherwise a surveillance candidate. Perfect. So, I mean, to me, a general message is that surveillance is here. It's here in a big way. There's so much to take in the objective path data, the PSA, the density, the MRI, the patient health and comorbidities, history, maybe pepper and some molecular features. And, and it doesn't come up with a clean cut. Here's what you should do. You know, if you think about some of the way that the AUA guidelines are done, non-mosivasive bladder cancer, the index patients, you would have 45 index patients for the surveillance discussion. With that being said, what does a kind of a general surveillance protocol look at Michigan and Montefiore in Maryland? And maybe, you know, just to put something out there. So I, I like confirmatory biopsies generally within a year, 18 months. And to me, kind of surveillance starts then. We've talked a little bit about the exceptions, older, sicker people, small volume, clean MRIs. You know, it's going to be a little nuanced. But I'll generally start out with PSAs about every six months at 18 months, repeat an MRI. If the MRI looks clean, PSAs again every six months at three years, repeat an MRI. And generally, I like to get a biopsy at three years. So again, I'm just throwing myself out there and hopefully none of you guys are like, oh my God, Aditi, what are you doing out there in San Diego? But we can jump off with that as a stand starting point. And I'd love to just kind of go around the room on this one. I'm happy to start. So I, I agree with you completely if it's a much older patient and yeah, there's extremes and there's always exceptions and there's truly no one size fits all. Uh, and that's why we, I wouldn't say we have an exactly standard protocol, but I tend to do a PSA every three months of the first year because I found that even men who prefer surveillance, there's still that level of anxiety. And so having a slightly more frequent pattern of follow-up in the first year is can be a little bit more pacifying for them. And once you've done your confirmatory biopsy, which for me is somewhere between 12 and 24 months, always preceded by an MRI, and depending on PSA kinetics when that happens, then I will phase out the PSA to every six months uh, and you know, sort of lengthen the period of follow-up from there if they've demonstrated disease stability. Okay. I like that. I mean, you know, thinking about it, there's no other common urologic cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, testis cancer that we screen or survey less than every four to six months at the minimum. So I think it's maybe another shared decision making point. Do you want to see me every three months or every six months in that first little bit? Arvin, what's your old practice? Yeah, I, I kind of do a derivative or maybe a permutation, if you will, of the, the music recommendations. And so with music, there's a high intensity and a low intensity surveillance plan. And so really the high intensity, the only real difference is obtaining a PSA every six months or every 12 months. So with patients who, who have essentially demonstrated disease stability and low risk prostate cancer, They'll move to a PSA annually and a tumor volume reassessment. And that can either be an MRI or a biopsy or coupled together every three years. But I do feel myself pushing that boundary even, even more and more and more. And hopefully, you know, in some patients avoiding biopsy of somebody who has, you know, very low risk prostate cancer or low risk and a subsequent biopsy, you don't find anything. And the MRI is net, you know, the biopsy is negative. Doesn't mean the cancer disappeared, of course, but then the MRI is, is negative and the PSA is stable. It's really hard to justify pushing that person for a biopsy just the, for the sake of doing a biopsy. And it's not hard to convince them to not do a biopsy. But the high intensity surveillance plan is generally every six months as a PSA. And I would only increase that interval if I'm concerned about the PSA kinetics. So if I'm seeing a spuriously elevated PSA, I may alter that. But in general, I think that we're on the same page here. Minaj? I'm actually really glad Arvin brought up that there's like 
tiers that they use, because I think that is where we as a field need to go. And I, I haven't formalized a protocol per se here because I feel like any attempt to do so runs into the, exactly the problem, Aditya, that you were mentioning when you it came up at your institution, that there's just so many exceptions that it becomes kind of foolish as an endeavor. But I think that in general, standards are tend to get PSAs every six months. A lot of that is still probably historic practice based, and it's it's trying not to do it every three months. For patients who are more nervous, they might get every three months, and most of them every six months. At least one year MRI and biopsy for someone who has not had MRI biopsy yet. And if they had initial MRI biopsy, then just an MRI to gauge stability. And then after that, it really becomes catered towards disease dynamics. How close is it to, is it on the higher volume side, where if it's a favorable intermediate risk or if it's someone with many cores of high volume Gleason 6, I'll be sure to get at least a yearly MRI and I may, you know, with minor fluctuations, suggest repeat biopsy. If it was like, you know, 5% of one core, I mean, it's going to take a lot to get an MRI, let alone a biopsy. And I think, I think this, this actually like precision surveillance, if you will, is I think a topic that's gaining a lot of momentum of interest because I, I you know, Movember had this big initiative. They've done a lot, of, a lot of great work in prostate cancer, obviously, and they've done a lot of work in active surveillance. They, they funded the registry in Europe for a while, and, and they, they actually had this big kind of reanalysis where they engage patients in like a big process and they engage like researchers in a big process. And they, they, they came up with like their top priority and their top priority is actually precision guided surveillance. So that's like, they have a big call out now to do major collaborative projects and coming up with optimized precision guided surveillance. And I, mean, I, I think that that's something I'm trying to do on a per patient basis, but haven't figured out how to standardize it. I do have a question to you, Aditya, and the rest of the group as well. You know, I think that what we do a poor job in is de-escalating surveillance, right? Like we have a lot of older men, you know, we have we even have men who reach us, you know, with a life expectancy of less than 10 years, right? How do you de-escalate? How do you de-escalate to watch for waiting? And what do you do and how do you do it? Yeah, it's like you're in my head, Arvin, because my last question um, was transitioning off of surveillance, which I think is kind oh, of in is that, that, right? same, oh, well, in that same family. And you know, I feel like it's one of those things where my own biases are kind of coloring that conversation. I feel like bringing up that conversation is bringing up the patient's finite time on this earth to the forefront and that it's going to be off-putting or poorly received, i.e. I think you're unhealthy to the point that it's not worth falling anymore. I have zero data to back that up. And I bet I'm misinformed that it's like, listen, at this point, we can keep doing this. My threshold to do an MRI on you is very, very high because it's costly. It can be anxiety provoking. My threshold to do a biopsy on you is sky high because despite doing it transparently and all that kind of stuff, there are risks. Do you want to keep following things? Do you want to extend the interval? You know, I always feel like if you start noticing bone pain or losing weight, it's kind of a tough thing to leave the patient with. Like, you know, if you develop symptomatic metastatic prostate cancer. So all that to say, I don't really think I have a great sense of it. I mean, I do bring it up into patients as they, you know, if they've had a major life event, a stroke or a heart attack, I'm like, you've got other more pressing things. Do you really want to keep following this? The likelihood of you dying in the next 10 years is 1%. That's kind of actually my selective data sharing that I kind of go with. You know, I relate a lot to what you're saying, Aditya. I think I used to do it the same way and run into the same kind of hurdles because it's really hard to have that conversation. And, and you know what changed it for me was I uh, had a lot of interaction with the UCL group and Caroline Moore in particular. And actually, Kara, even more than me, has spent a lot of time with them too, it, it turns out. And they've, they're really doing a lot of this great work in this space. And so Dr. Moore, she, she's like, she describes it as graduation. She makes it disease-centric and says, like, congratulations, you've graduated to uh, watchful waiting, as opposed to this whole, like, you're probably going to die before this thing gets you, you know? And I've used that phrase, actually, ever since I heard her. And then you, like, put a caveat, on, like, look, there's a very unlikely event that, like, this thing, you know, we're going to stop watching it and it does something weird. But for the most part, it looks like you're graduating to, you know, this, like, your disease is stable and it's really not going to bother you, so we don't have to keep it a close eye. I think that is a 
positive spin that actually is really well received by patients. I love it. And, and will they even check PSA in that setting? Like post, you know, like Aditya said, it's hard to leave a patient with, hey, look out if you notice a lot of weight loss and, you know, bone pain. Like we rec in music, they recommend just taking the PSA annually with no MRI or biopsies. But then you're still faced with that quandary, right? Of an increasing PSA or a spuriously increasing PSA. It's just basically surveillance, like a lower intensity surveillance where, you know, a rise in PSA may ultimately trigger some other downstream thing. So do you just, do they just not do anything at that point? Yeah, I, I feel like it doesn't work if you do anything. I actually, I think the ones that do PSAs, it actually makes it worse because now you don't have these MRIs to kind of back it up. I think like, I think if you're going watchful, watchful waiting, you're going watch, like you got to stop checking. I just, that's my personal yeah. bias on this. Like if you're getting divorced, you don't want to live together anymore. You just got to, it's got to be a full, full clean break at that point. Carol, yeah. what, what about, what about for you? I like the graduating menage. That's good. That's good. And I think it's real. You know, it's not kind of a cheesy, kitschy. It's like you've done it. You've out, outlived your prostate cancer's, you know, mortality potential. How about you, Kara? How does that conversation go with you? Gosh, you know, I haven't used that phrase with uh, with transitioning to watchful waiting. I've used it. We have like a survivorship clinic that we send men who are a few years post like radical treatment and they're just truly having their PSA monitored. So I say you've graduated from our active follow-up and now you're going to transition to the survivorship clinic where, you know, men have survived and ha had their treatment. But it is hard because I there's still, I, there's a fear among patients and their families, especially when they have younger family members of, well, what do we do if X happens with dad or whatever? And they, or they, a lot of them have not, in my community, not limitations with like primary care relationships, or they may not have a primary care provider or they use the ER as their primary care place. So they don't really have, like, we are their point of contact. So if we're saying we're not even really checking anymore, then they sort of almost feel cut off in some ways. So I guess I struggle with it. And I don't have as good of an answer as you do. And, you know, it's like a once a year PSA in my book, just so they have some point of medical contact. Yeah, I think all good points. And Minaj had mentioned earlier, kind of personalized active surveillance. And I'm going to brag on him a little bit because I think he, he would be too humble. But, uh, you know, this group here has uh, initiated a really wonderful collaboration, Prostate Cancer Active Surveillance Research Institute, really getting patient advocate, patient involvement to understand what's important to our to our patients. You know, we may think, oh, it's just another active surveillance patient's Let's do our PSAs and our MRIs and our biopsy, but there's so much more to it. You know, the psychosocial impact, sexual health, carrying a cancer diagnosis that it's it's really hard for us to probably really appreciate. So, and you know, to me certainly the the nuances, the patient centric nature of it in your all's hand is coming across loud and clear to our listenership, and it really resonates with me. One of my main areas of clinical and research attention is testis cancer, and I think it's so easy to be like curable, no issues, no problems. But when you kind of dig into it and get out the patient reported outcome surveys, these young men have like a tough go at it. And I think there's a lot of similarities and certainly with small renal mass surveillance and so forth. Well, you know, we're, we're getting on at an hour and I, I think I could keep talking for another few, but I would like to hear, you know, just some kind of parting thoughts for the listenership and maybe Kara, we could start with you and Minaj and Arvin as, as we wrap up. Well, I first, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and just sharing our ideas and experiences in this space. And I think we, you know, we share some of the same questions and challenges that um, other people in practice face. And I think that there's just been tremendous strides in active surveillance in this country, in other countries, especially in the last 10 and 20 years. But uh, there's still some room for improvement. And you know, I think it's both on the provider acceptance and comfort with how to counsel and how to appease patients' fears, as well as patient acceptance and finding the resources available to support them through it. And so there's there's great work being done in this, and it'll be exciting to see what comes out in the next few years. Absolutely. Minaj? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to just echo. I mean, you know, I appreciate Aditya bringing together this group on this topic. I mean, it's just such a contemporary relevant topic on so many angles. I think the, on the patient side, on the like field as a whole. And to me personally, I just think that, you know, it's exciting to be practicing and as an academic kind of researching at a time where there's actually a lot of opportunity to make some 
really significant impact, if you will. Like, I, I, I think that active students is ripe for kind of updating and that it's based on the shoulders of giants who've done just incredible work. And yet so much has changed in the last five to 10 years that it's due for kind of a, a revitalization using contemporary methodology and techniques and whatnot. And so it's fun to be in this space. And I think the conversation we had today really reflects all these like various aspects and whatnot. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly learned, learned a ton and it's always kind of nice to interface with some of your colleagues and make sure that, you know, you're not practicing 19th century medicine in the 21st century. Arvin, how about yourself? Yeah. And I, again, likewise, thank you so much to, to yourself, Aditya, and to Backtable Urology for giving us the opportunity to discuss this. You know, this is going to be perfect for anyone who has an hour and a half commute to work to just do it into a discussion on active surveillance, but I would say maybe, you know, my, the, the kind of take-home points would be that I think we've really highlighted here that w we can do this better and we're getting better all the time, but I think we can do this better. And the other thing is, is that, you know, we've started with more is more. And, you know, I think that what Minhaj said really resonated with me that in active surveillance, less is more. All right. Well, thanks again. Can't wait to see you guys here in just a few days. Safe travels. And until next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson. Josh McWhorter and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.